Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, Dylan Studies pioneer, critic, and author, Michael Gray. Down the highway, down the tracks, down the road to ecstasy, I followed you beneath the stars, hounded by your memory and all your raging glory. I think this is going to be a podcast full of raging glory. Yeah. I can feel it in my bones. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Michael. Why did you choose those lines? Um, because I love them and they're, they're interesting to me because they're, they're part of a great song, Idiot Wind. One of the great songs that um, only very keen Dylan people know at all. Mm. You know, it's not one of the ones that's ever percolated down into the general consciousness in the way that uh, even, you know, Lay Lady Lay has. But also because, as a matter of fact, I think those lines work as lines on the page, which uh, it's interesting to me because obviously Bob's work doesn't have to do that but sometimes it does, and that's an example. And also because um, within those lines, there's one of his wonderful um, contradictions, if you like. You know, um, he sings, hounded by your memory. You know, well, a, a, a more, a less, a less dramatic line would be haunted by your memory, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But he sings hounded, and that brings up this wonderful contradiction because he's saying that he's hounded by her memory but actually it sounds as if he's hounding her down the highway down the tracks mm. down the you know it sounds as if he's the one following her yeah. and uh, uh, so I love that and then there's hound dog and hound dog bade do you have a favorite version of idiot wind because I mean those lyrics for example weren't in the song originally I love one of the. I love the first sort of bootleg version we ever heard, mm. one of the very quiet ones, mm. um, and I love the the Fort Collins one, which is you know um, the angry one. The angry Super one, angry. yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. uh, I think that um, it's a commonplace to say, but I said it a long time ago um, <laughs> um, that uh, that the version he puts out on the original Blood on the Tracks album is him stepping back from the real expression of emotion, as if that's been too raw, even though it was expressed on that very quiet version. Yeah. Uh, and instead, he, he gives a more declamatory theatrical anger to the version on Blood on the Tracks. But then when you see him live in Fort Collins, oh. the, uh, the anger seems... The seething. It's seething is a good is, word. Is, I was is authentic. Use, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It interests me how those songs change in such a short space of time. Because I mean, for example, "Tangled Up in Blue" again was done in New York quietly, then done very, very differently in Minnesota, and then by Rolling Thunder, which is is the same year that "Blood on the Tracks" came out. Mm. He's he's down to doing it an, on an acoustic guitar again. Mm. And there's one particular version which from Montreal, where where the arrangement is sort of syncopated and it's very, very different and it's it's yearning. Yeah. And it seems like almost the version he put on the, the the released album got too far away from where he wanted that song to be and came back to it. Whereas Idiot Wind just went off in a, in a much more bilious direction, didn't it? Yes, bilious. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Should we um, back back a little down the track and uh -huh. just, just sort of briefly start at the beginning, Michael, because... It's, it's a long time ago, isn't it? It's a long time ago. So and we've asked all our guests this, but it, it's particularly interesting with you. When did you first encounter the work of uh, Bob Dylan? 
Uh, well, uh, to put this in in some kind of context, I went to uh, I was sent to a very kind of uh, rigid school. I was born in 1946, okay, and um, even as early as 1977, I think I remember talking to some girl in a nightclub who said, "God, that's only just after the war." <laughs> And she already thought that it was an incredibly long time mm. ago, you know, bizarrely distant past. Um, anyway, when I was about um, 11, I saw the first rock and roll TV program on BBC One, which was uh, Six Five Special. Mm. And Tommy Steele came on that and he sang Hound Dog. And um, I, I had had a birthday or a Christmas coming up and I asked my grandmother if she would buy me this record, Tommy Steele singing Hound Dog. Well, when she went to the record shop, she found there was no such thing. There was either a Tommy Steele record or there was Hound Dog by this other person called Elvis Presley. <laughs> and she had that dilemma. <laughs> Thank God she bought the Elvis record. And, uh, and, and all that rock and roll flooded into me. And it was a complete antidote to school, you know, and to respectability mm -hmm. and to be doing what you're told and so on. And so rock and roll was what I really grew up on as I hit my adolescence and so on. And I loved all those people, Little Richard, the usual people, you know, Chuck. Um, and so on. And then when I got to university to read English, and the sort, I mean, the one thing I would say for my school is that it put you on this conveyor belt to university, and you'd have to have worked quite hard to jump off it, mm. you know, whereas you mm. didn't really have to do much to arrive at university. And when I got there, I met this um, uh, girl called Linda, who astonished me by saying, uh, well, you know, there is someone on a whole other level from Elvis Presley. <gasps> what? <laughs> How could that be? <laughs> Inconceivable. And she said, no, no, the, he, this is the young guy and uh, he writes his own stuff and he doesn't just sing, uh-huh, and, um, and his name is Bob Dylan. And uh, because I was interested in Linda, I became interested in Bob Dylan. And uh, she lent me the latest album, which was Another Side Of, 1964 album, the last completely solo album until the 90s. And um, it took me a while to get into his voice because I had no training in folk clubbery of any kind, you know. I'd heard times there are changing on the radio, uh, on kind of pop radio, and it had just seemed weird, you know. Oh. And also, it was rather off-putting because there were a whole load of uh, bearded young men with acoustic guitars lying on sofas in the junior common room singing turgid versions <laughs> of Masters of War yeah. and, and that stuff. And so, you know, I wasn't primed to be into Bob, mm. but I, I persevered. And one day, uh, it just dropped, you know, the penny, the hook dropped into me. What, was there a song or a bit of poetry that you remember? That no, it was just... Uh, well, I think I think there were, there were songs on that album that, uh, you know, it's regarded as a minor album. Um, and obviously, compared to some of the others, it is. But um, I suppose what was extraordinary was the sort of revolutionary attitude towards uh, adolescent sex, if you like, on that mm. on that album. Because nobody had ever sung things like "A Lover for Your Life" and nothing more. Mm. Wow, you know, all songs were "I Love You, Please Be True," Rocket Day Johnny saying. Tell your ma, tell your pa, our loves are going to grow. Wow, wow. <laughs> um, uh, 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 and um, on 
one of the outtakes, which, of course, I didn't hear for years afterwards, Mama, You've Been On My Mind, he sings, uh, he doesn't sing the same line now live, but uh, he's saying, I don't even mind who you'll be waking with tomorrow. Mm. Mama, You're Just On My Mind. Yeah. This was extraordinary, you know? And, uh, and if you got to go, go now. You know, and even in California, when he was singing If You Got to Go Go Now uh, in 1965, they, uh, the audience laughs yeah. because it's so yeah. fresh. It's such a liberation to hear this stuff, you know, virginity being joked about, taken so lightly mm. in this way, you know. And, of course, it obviously made sense to those of us who were students in the mid-60s. Mm. It was a great time to be a student. The 60s were absolutely exploding. And so, um, so yeah, I suppose the, the, the lyrics, and also, you know, I don't want to do this to you, I don't want to do that to you, baby, I just want to be friends with you. There's another track on that album, you know. Mm. And I loved Spanish Harlem Incident, not really particularly for the words, but just the sound mm. of the words. Yeah. Mm. And to me, it was, it, it, although I was being trained to read close to the text English literature, mm. and I came to feel that later some of Dylan's songs could certainly bear the weight of the same kind of critical scrutiny. For most of my listening years, I had been listening to the sound of words rather than actually what they were saying, you know. Uh, Roy Orbison, for example. I, I wasn't really identifying only the lonely with, you know, people who were lonely. I was just hearing the sounds of these beautiful, beautifully sung words. Mm -hmm. And so all that sort of don't you worry my little pet on the Teddy Bears record, um, things that are so, you know, patronizingly male uh, towards women. I didn't hear that. I just heard the sounds of the words, you know. This is why I, I hate now the way that Dylan has changed the lyrics to trying to get to heaven so that he sings something about whatever your little heart wants or whatever your little heart desires. It's a horrible, horrible... <laughs> retrograde kind of a line, you know. <laughs> God almighty, you don't, you don't say that to people anymore. No. And, and what about coming at it from a, from a rock and roll background rather than a folky background? Uh, we'll get on to your first gig in a minute because I want to talk at length about that. But before that, Subterranean Homesick Blues comes along. Mm -hmm. Did you did your mind immediately hear too much monkey business? Did you know this was something? No, I, no, I didn't. No. Um, I wasn't particularly familiar with too much monkey business. I yeah. liked I liked Chuck Berry and I I I had listened to a lot of Chuck Berry, but mostly the hits. Mm. And Too Much Monkey Business wasn't a major hit. So it was later mm -hmm. that oh. it struck me so forcefully that Yeah, it's only one section. There are two sections in Too Much Monkey Business. Mm. Uh, and you know, some of it is is quite old fashioned. Um, but the stuff about working in the filling station, too many tasks, check the windows, wipe, the, you know, all yeah, that. Yeah. That's that is subterranean homesick blues. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So subterranean homesick blues, in a way, was the first one, your your first album that had just come out on the day that you purchased, presumably. Yes. And so, yeah. I'm not sure I brought you... it. I'm not sure I bought it the first day I could. Okay. I mean, this was York. And this was still 1965. And uh, well, I grew up in Birkenhead, and so I was there in the holidays. And uh, and Birkenhead uh, was the sort of town where there was only um, there wasn't such a thing as a record shop. There was only a shop that sold lampshades and washing machines. And somewhere at the back, there would be uh, a counter where a tweed-suited 
gentlemen would mm. be would be selling you records. And um, I've said this before, I'm afraid, but uh, it was one of those situations where if it was in the top ten, they'd sold out of it, and if it wasn't, they hadn't heard of it. Yeah, yeah. it was very very hard to buy a record. So when when Dylan toured England in the in the spring of '65, and he, for example, he came to he came to Liverpool then, didn't he? Was that was that on your radar at all? No, no, it just wasn't on my radar. No, in fact, I uh, when he came back in '66 with the yeah. with the Hawks, it was quite a desperate rush to get a ticket because I didn't hear that that it was happening until you know quite soon before the event. Yeah, I, yeah. One of the things I look back on with astonishment is the way that. Nobody then ever followed him round, you know? You just went to... If he was in your local city, mm. that's where you went. Mm. Nobody followed him round, even though the cities were so close together, mm. you know? If I thought about it, you know, why didn't we Why didn't we all go to Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, at least if we yeah. were living up there of in course. the north? Um, and so, so that's May the 14th, 1966, yes. Saturday night in Liverpool. Yes. Uh, your first Dylan concert. Yes, at the Odeon Cinema, which yeah. is... Long demolished. Yes. Because uh, that was the sort of crowd he was playing to then, two and a half thousand seaters. So yeah. a lot of them were in movie cinemas. And, and, we, yeah. and you'd heard the album by by then? Not Blonde on Blonde. <clears throat> it hadn't come out. Okay, so you... So were... all that stuff that he was singing from Blonde on Blonde, mm. some in the acoustic and some in the electric half, we hadn't heard. No, we had never was. heard. So how and, did that affect you? Oh, uh, well... The electric half was difficult because it was ten times as loud as mm. anyone had ever heard anything. It's very nice now to have the tapes where you can hear everything so clearly. Mm. But at the time, it was just this great distorted wall of sound. So was it louder than presumably you'd seen rock and roll acts before? Oh, ten times louder. You'd yeah. Ten yeah. times louder, really? You'd, you'd, oh, yeah. you'd, but this was different. Yeah, yeah. I'd been to Liverpool Empire and seen a lot of people. I'd seen... Jerry Lee Lewis, and actually interviewed him uh, for no particular reason except that I could. <laughs> yeah. um, I'd seen um, Little Richard there. No, I saw Little Richard in Birkenhead. Uh, all kinds of people. Gene uh, Vincent, Clarence, Gene Frogman, Vincent, Henry. Yes, said, yes. Yeah. And so yeah. it was ten times louder. Yeah. And, pre- and the mix was and far more terrible. distorted. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, um, but the acoustic half was as clear as as it ever sounds on the recording. Well, you can hear, even on the recording, I, I was reminding myself of it um, on the way here, the uh, acoustic half of the Liverpool concert is so respectful. They don't even cheer at Mr Tambourine Man, which a lot of the crowds did. Uh-huh. It's like they, they were so uh, in awe of this man, and they get very, <laughs> very arsy very, very quickly yes. in the electric half. Yes. Um, and he, I think it's the first night he starts doing that mumbling into the microphone until everyone stops, and then he goes into the song. It's the first time he does that. I think he, there's something about uh, the saviors backstage, I think, and all that. I mean, it gets quite confrontational. And, of course, now we can see it in the context that that was the first of four very, very intense days when he played Liverpool, Leicester, Sheffield and Manchester in, in, in as many days, uh-huh. uh, which culminates, of course, in the big, the big Judas thing in Manchester. But... In Liverpool, it's so odd, odd because they are so respectful in the first half mm. and so angry in the second. But uh, at the time, watching it uh, from somewhere in the middle of the place, I got I didn't get the sense that the there was anything remotely like a majority mm. who were being angry. And of course, it made no sense to me because there was just rock and roll. You know? Were people leaving? Were they walking out? I don't I don't remember noticing that. No, no. no. 
I've heard it said later, you know, by Liverpudlians that that nobody in Liverpool booed. Well, that's just a lie. It's, it's total. Lie. So, what was your reaction? Did you think great first half? Too bad about the second half, or did it have? Did it hit you more on a gut level? Uh, it hit me on a on a gut level, and I wished it had been easier to hear what I was hearing mm. in the second half. But I was so mesmerised by the first half. The entire experience had been remarkable. Um, I think it would have been remarkable whenever you had first seen Bob in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, people people who are only seeing him for the first time now, I don't think they're getting 10% of what people got up to a certain point. But, you know, I think I would love to have been at the Festival Hall in 64 when, mm. you know, when he, he it was the first time he sang Chimes of Freedom. Mm. Uh, it must have been extraordinary. And so for for us in Liverpool in 66, well, first of all, you know, you walk up the hill to the to up London Road and there's a sign outside the cinema saying... Uh, 2.45, The Sound of Music, 7 p.m., Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah, so that's splendid so that beginning all. to the experience, you know? <laughs> and then uh, and then you go in and uh, and there's none of this, ladies and gentlemen, you know, blah, blah, blah. Not at all, you know? There's just um, the curtain and the spotlight and this bony figure who comes out through the middle of the curtain and comes up and and says nothing and starts trying to tune the guitar yeah. for some time. And then this voice soars up into the auditorium. It was extraordinary. And then, you know, he gave us uh, Visions of Johanna, of course. He'd never heard that before. He'd never heard a song like that before. Yeah, many, many verses, 14 lines of verse. And, uh, and one of the things that always strikes me as extraordinary about him until until far, far more recently, was that the extraordinary ability to recite at length when completely stoned. Yeah. I mean, of course, at the time I didn't know he was stoned. I didn't really know about that stuff and, until 1967 mm. when someone at the university asked me if I smoked and I said yes. Um, uh, and we had It's this, like a woodbine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but... Um, but really, how did he manage that? Those 66 concerts, he's so out of his head, and yet he's word perfect I know. through these long, long songs. He makes more mistakes, you know. Since yes, we, we saw him do Desolation Row a couple of years ago, and he repeated a verse, but he wouldn't have done that then. And, no. I, and, yeah. and then actually, the Desolation Row at Liverpool is, is more focused even than some of the other ones. It's uh-huh. just, just otherworldly. Uh-huh. And so when you finally track down Blonde on Blonde, and I think... We uh, now agree in this country that was more July, August, wasn't it? Yeah, 66? well, I was in America. Right. I went, I went to New York for the first time in my life mm. in um, in the summer of '66, and I bought it in New York. And then I went to uh, Richmond, Virginia, and I found a single uh, which had just like Tom Thumb's Blues Live at Liverpool of on course. the B side. Yeah. Uh, and so I finished. Uh, uh, I graduated in '67, and by then I was walking around thinking. You know, there were so many songs by then that were worth real scrutiny. And so I began to think I wanted to write about him at length, which would mean writing a book. So it wasn't, you know, I want to be a writer. It was I need to write about Bob Dylan's work at length. Mm. Uh, uh, I'm very slow, you know, and so it took it took a long time. 
So Nashville Skyline came out? Yes, yes. What was your reaction to that? I was still living in York at that point when Nashville Skyline came out. And uh, I remember listening to it for the first time on a record player of a fellow student downstairs. It was wondrous, but also hilarious. Hilarious because of the cheesy lyrics, do you mean? Or? Yeah, and and the brilliant lapidary shine of, of the vocal and, and the whole thing, yeah. I mean, had you been... Presumably you, you had listened to quite a bit of country with Jerry Lee Lewis and allied people, so the fact that he'd kind of gone country didn't throw you in any way. Well, it, it sort of did, because it was very uncool, you know. Yeah. It really was. I don't think I'd listen to much country music, you know. Jerry Lee Lewis, he was always, uh, he was always um, very... Uh, like Dylan, he didn't care about what people's expectations were, you know. Mm. I remember seeing Jerry Lee Lewis in Liverpool Empire come on, see a, a room full of rockers, and sit down and, and play mostly quiet ballads. Yeah. And then I also saw him at the Wembley Country Music Festival in, uh, would have been 77 or 78, mm. and he goes out into this country music fans thing and plays 90% <laughs> rock and roll. And so uh, it was the rock and roll that I went to Jerry Lee for mm. and, and his beautiful voice and his wonderful piano, yeah. So really all the... I learned... I, learned, uh, I was introduced to Hank Williams for example, by Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, because you win again as an early B-side, isn't it? You win again, yes. Uh, uh, but I knew also, I also knew, knew you win again from Fats Domino right. because it was on a single of his. Right. And Jambalaya. Jambalaya, of course. Yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, all those, all those uh, Hank Williams songs that mm. Jerry Lee did, yeah, with, his, with his beautiful piano work, yeah. Yeah. So, so moving on from Nashville Skyline, uh -huh. I mean, when how, had you started writing your your book, and was it forming uh, around that time, or was it later? I was taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, when did you when did you decide? Okay, I'm ready to to write. Really, the first critical I think, study um, of Bob Dylan. I think it was. I, I I started writing it seriously in in 1969 70. Um, my wife and I and our son, we uh, we moved to a cottage in North Devon in a little village, and uh, I wrote most of it there. I was teaching English at the time at uh, what was then Barnstaple Grammar School in mm -hmm. North Devon. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, quite recently I heard Anne Cleves on uh, Desert Island yeah. Discs, um, and she mentioned me because mm -hmm. she had been a pupil. Huh. I didn't know that until she mentioned it. Because she chose Dylan as one of her discs, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she said that uh, she'd, she was asked why she got in, how she got into Dylan, and she said, oh, well, I had this English teacher who was more interested in Bob Dylan than teaching English. <laughs> yeah. But actually, that was, that was actually not quite true, because she then went on to read English at university. So I must have been quite good at teaching English. Mm. as well as t telling people about Bob. So I haven't seen the first, the very first edition of Song and Dance Man. Where does that end? What's the, the final album that you covered? Um, I think it's New Morning. Yeah, it might, it might take some notice of Greatest Hits, Volume 2. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And was it easy, difficult to get it published? Did anyone... Because it was the first no, time this had happened. No, it was surprisingly easy, really. Yeah. I knew someone, so that made mm. it easier. Mm -hmm. not, not that I had an in to real publishing, but someone I'd known for a long time, a really excellent journalist called Nigel Fountain, 
He's written some really interesting stuff. But then it was delayed because the editor moved publishing houses and he took my book with him, which is why it came out at the same time as the Scuduto. And, of course, that's a biography. Mm. Far more people want to read a biography than want to read a critical study, mm. even if it's of Bob Dylan, you know. Well, the opening sentence, in, certainly in Song and Dance Man 3 from 2002, says this concerns itself with Bob Dylan's work, not what he has for breakfast. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if that was in the original. But... I, I think it probably was. Yeah. 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 My timing was not great, uh, or the publisher's timing was not great, mm. because... By by November 72, he was going through one of his passé phases, you mm. know. Mm. Uh, it was a long time since he'd done a, what was considered a major album. Um, the, the last proper studio album was Self-Portrait, which, as we know, had been widely condemned. Mm. I remember going to a big festival somewhere, um, and I think Led Zeppelin and Zappa and the Mothers were the headlinings. Um, but I remember going there and um, when Self-Portrait was new and they, they, I remember hearing a bit of it played for the first time over these huge banks of speakers. If it had been an earlier album, like, you know, when, when John Wesley Harding came out, for example, there would have been a really strong positive interest from all the people sitting around on the grass, you know. Mm. And there was very little response to whatever they were playing, Alberta or something, mm. from uh, from self-portrait. Do you think it was... And then, of, like... of course, there was the Grill Marcus, uh, what is this shit, yeah. review mm. in Rolling Stone. Um, but I, had a, I had a friend, a very dear friend, uh, called Peter, who loved self-portrait straight away. So, you know, and, and I liked quite a lot of it. Mm. Uh, I liked... Um, I always particularly loved Bill Isle, and Copper Kettle mm, and yeah. um, and the Everly Brothers one. I was going to say, there's two Everly's covers on yes. there. That's, that's, that's worth something, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. They were playing Dylan, and do you think the general feeling was, it's just the new Bob Dylan, which yeah, we he all was, know is shit, because he was, we yeah, told. He was, he was that, yeah. you know, that was the 60s, and now it's the 70s. And, uh, and so, yeah, so it was not... It, my book came out at a bad time, really. Uh, if it had come out, you know, a year after... Mm. Blood on the tracks. It would have. Did it get been reviewed? Different. Did people pay attention to it? Uh, yeah, it it got reviewed in, for example, Sunday Times, um, and I got to write a, a a piece about how I'd come to write it in New Musical Express, but I don't remember a huge amount. It was funny when when Song and Dance Man Three came out, uh, the huge book, six hundred and thirty thousand words, including the footnotes. Um, <laughs> In, uh, there are many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when that came out at the very end, the last fortnight of the 20th century, there were all kinds of wonderful reviews saying how my first book had been, you know, this sort of, you know, made all these other books on rock music seem old-fashioned and, you know, this was a game-changer and so on. And I thought, God, I wish somebody had said that <laughs> at the time, mm. back mm. in 1973, you know. I yeah. might, I might have... Um, I might have had a different career. But, I mean, you did go on to write the second volume, despite yeah. the fact that you yeah. say the first one was largely ignored, except for a few yeah. Uh, publications. I, yeah, but by the time the second one came out, it came out in 1981, so he was just coming away from... Uh, the born again phase. So again, he was uh, he was he was damn not. that Bob Dylan. He screwed <laughs> yeah. up your career again. Yeah, yeah. 
So the second one came out, yeah. and again, was it like, this guy's passé? I mean, did it... Yes, absolutely it was, yes. I mean, that's, yeah. I'm really surprised, because I yeah. just assumed that the first one was regarded as a landmark, and the second one was regarded as a bigger landmark, because they no, are no, now. No, no, no. And I, I wouldn't regard the second one as nearly as important anyway, because I think it had a great selection of photos, but I don't think I'd had time, sufficient time to revise the text enough. Mm. I mean, my own... For me, I like the first one and I like the third and final one. Yeah, I love all the stuff that's in the third one, which I you know, didn't realise until much later would never have been in the first two editions. The stuff about Oh Mercy and the stuff about Time Out of Mind and, <laughs> and you know, the, the little things about uh, a series of dreams when you, when you talk about all I seem to be doing was climb... You go climbing, Bob. Climbing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just little things like that that I love, and that wonderful bit where you're talking about um, where teardrops fall from a mercy, uh-huh. and you're talking about the the similarity between Dylan and Buddy Holly, and you say, you know, the closing saxophone break on where teardrops fall. Compare that to True Love Ways, and I've yes. never been able to unhear that. You know, it's uh-huh. so clear. Oh, good. Yeah. So the third one was, which is where I came in, because uh-huh. I can't remember where, but I read some. Fabulous review and this something yeah, that said you were. must buy this book. Oh, there were there were wonderful reviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, so, uh, you know, he was um, he was just just coming out of um, being passé again then, and um, so you think it was right place, right time. It was a brilliant was. book. I, I mean, at was, last, it was it was well timed. <laughs> yeah, the actual writing of the book took me most of the 1990s. You know, and 95 percent of it was written before I had the internet. Mm. Well, before most people. Wow. Yeah. You know. And so the research, I remember Greil Marcus reviewed and said the research was extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, 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 but that's why it took me most of a decade. And they had said to me very firmly, 400 and something thousand words is the max. Mm. So I was thinking, oh, shit. You know, I finished it. And then I had this horrible few days where I was waiting to hear the verdict from the mm. publisher. And then... Um, she rang up and said, um, we've decided to uh, go with it as it is, Michael, because what could you cut? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was somebody real. Somebody, a real yeah. affirmation, yeah. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. I'm, I'm particularly interested in the fact that, you know, the first two uh, editions came on the heel of Bob Dylan being a sort of lull and not being fashionable. Mm. And when the third one came out, um, was around the turn of the century, when mm-hmm. suddenly, for some reason, Bob Dylan became fashionable, didn't he? Between Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft, and he wasn't trying to be fashionable, but some, for some reason, and you write about this in the book, you say he was embraced yes. by people who say, oh yes, we loved him all along. Yeah, exactly, yes. The same thing happened to Roy Orbison, you know. He was, he was regarded as a hopeless has-been, mm. you know, who could only get a gig doing some ghastly nightclub mm. um, until uh, suddenly he was discovered by, uh, you know, all these rock stars. And yeah. He was a, became a Wilbury, and then yeah. uh, Elvis Costello was involved in, in writing songs for him yes. and stuff. Yeah. And suddenly everyone, when he died, everybody had always loved him. Mm. Of course. Yeah. Well, th- with Dylan, with it, it was, um, I think it was the... 1996, interesting heart disease that he mm. contracted. Yes. And I think a, a journalist woke up to the fact that, oh, he might die. Perhaps he's an interesting cultural figure after all. Mm. And and then, you know, Time Out of Mind happened to be a critical success as well as a popular success. Mm. And then, yes, yeah, so suddenly it was different, you know. But before that, in the, in the earlier part of the decade, you know, those those solo acoustic albums that he made, which were so wonderful, nobody cared. 
No. You know, the record company didn't even bother to keep track of where he was on tour in those days, you know. He'd been written off, hadn't he? Yeah, he had been written. He didn't make money, you know. Yeah. There are 200 heavy metal bands that have outsold Bob Dylan. Hmm. Uh, influence and sales are, are are not necessarily the same. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I tell us, I, I've, I've said this in talks sometimes. Uh, I was going to the airport to go and see him in '89, um, I think. Um, no, it can't have been that because that uh, was when my wife and baby came to see the six concerts at the Beacon in '89, and we were at the stage door one time because I was collecting, having to collect my tickets from Jeff Rosen at the stage door. Right. And um, He was taking tickets? He Poor was, old Jeff Rosen, he's got him taking tickets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, he's uh, on the ground with the troops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, my, we were there um, with my daughter, Magdalena, and um, she was uh, a year old, so she was in arms with us. And, uh, and Tony Gagne came out to the stage door and said, ah, they even bring their babies for him to bless. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What do you say to that? <laughs> do we, were the people within the Dylan organisation aware of you, do you think, at that point? Yeah, well, Dylan was aware of me. Yeah. Um, I mean, he may have forgotten me by, by 1989, but he was aware of me in 78. Yeah. Because... Um, he, well, he had, his office had to be aware of me because even the first edition of the book, I had quoted from 115 songs. And one of them, I wanted the entire lyric of Lay Down Your Weary Tune, yeah. which hadn't even been released. And so I was very much dealing with his office. Mm. It wasn't Jeff Rosen then. It was um, a woman called Naomi Saltzman. Um, and there was a British office, a London office, who I was dealing with, uh, a, a woman called Christine Seville. And they were they were very helpful, but it was very hard to get them to accept that what I wanted was the lyrics as you heard them on the record and right. not as the music publishing had yeah. them. Because, you know, Bob would give a lyric to the music publisher and then you'd go into the studio and sing something different. Mm. Um, and that was what we all heard. That was what we knew. But music publishing had once upon a time been more important than records, you know. Mm. Sheet music had been what the hit parade consisted of. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard for old-style music publishers to accept the fact that nobody cared about sheet music anymore, you know. Mm. It wasn't the music publisher who mattered now. It was the record company and the, the record Mm. Uh, and so that that because it was so it was so long ago uh, it, that was a a real battle I had to have, but you know they in the end they they let me have my way and um and they let me have the royalties the songs for for what they regarded as a nominal sum it wasn't that nominal to me, but it was nominal to them yeah. you know mm. and and they've always been generous about that with me. Mm. I think, you know, they wanted to see the manuscript in the first place. And, of course, you should never show an artist a manuscript of your book. But but I don't suppose Bob himself looked at it, but mm. the office did. Are you talking um, about the very first one? Yes. And did yes. they want to see the others as well? No, no. Yeah, that's interesting. I was I was particularly interested in uh, you know the, 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 your big hit, the uh, song and dance man three, because <laughs> as you said, it was a big hit because partially because of time out of mind reviving his career. But that's not an album that you particularly 
uh, enjoyed it, you know. No. It, and uh, I, I have to say, I have to confess, because I've always kept quiet when we've discussed it on this show, because <laughs> it's not my favorite album by a long way. And and actually, one, I was I was rereading the book, and uh, you said about Make You Feel My Love, which is a song that I've always found, I, I totally agree with what you said, there's just a bit of it, a lyric that even a greeting card company would balk at. He sings this flaccid rhetoric with the voice of a reptilian roué. <laughs> and I totally agree with that. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I find it cringe-making. And, uh, and I've, I've, I've kept my mouth shut until we had you here so you could possibly back <laughs> me up. But I, do, I, I think you're great on Time Out of Mind because there's a lot of great things, Highlands, and there's a, a, some great tracks. Yes. But there's also some awful tracks. Yeah. I'm never going to like, I'm never going to like those finger-snapping kind of creeping towards jazz tracks you know i've 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 occasionally liked other versions of uh, i can't wait for example but million miles you know how much how much less effective a million miles is than a thousand miles behind mm. you know i know and I, I, I and as for make you feel my love well um you know that is the favorite bob song of people who don't like bob dylan you know, that's the one that was used on um, Britain's Got Talent or all those mm, things, you mm. know. Loads of, you know, that was the song Simon Cowell liked people to sing, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. I like it. I, I know that you're right, but I like it in the same way that I like Love Is All There Is, It Makes the World Go Round. I, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, the needle doesn't uh, go too far into my tritometer. You, you know, but it's Bob's version that I don't like. You know, I've heard Adele's version and I thought, not that I like it, but I thought that's the sort of person who should be singing it. Mm. But when I saw the video of her doing it, it made it sound like the song of a stalker. When he sings it, it sounds like the song of a stalker. And, I, I and think I'm going to make I, you feel my love. If you are going to go crawling down somebody's avenue, you think, well, why? You know, don't, this is my house. You've come to leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I read something about Dirt Road Blues. I think that's your least favorite track. I'm with you on that. I think that's, that's well, terrible. It, it doesn't really fit the sound of it, the echoey sound. Mm -hmm. It's just not doesn't gel with the rest of the album. You know. No. For someone who leaves Blind Willie McTell off Infidels because it doesn't fit with mm -hmm. the rest, or because he thinks he didn't sing it right. And then to put Dirt Road Blues on, on Time Out of Mind. Why do you think his, uh, his taste is so bad about his own stuff? Because it's notoriously bad, isn't it, about things that he leaves well, off yes and albums? No. Uh, uh, I, I think that um, when you listen to the outtakes of a lot of albums, I kind of think, yeah, he, he's probably put the right version on. Not necessarily the one I like the best or admire the most, mm -hmm. but probably the one that should have been on, you know. I think that's true for most of the songs on Blood on the Tracks. That, um, I mean, there are a lot of versions. You know, if it had been a double album and you'd had two versions of, of if, if you see her say hello, like there were two versions of, you know, Forever Young on, yeah. on Planet Waves, mm. that might be different. But, but I think he often makes, you know, when you look at those notebooks uh, 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 and, and the changes he makes, they're usually for the better, certainly from the notebook to the recording. Mm. They're usually for the better. And then uh, in more recent years, he'll come on live and make changes for the worse. 
What about the, what does he now sing instead of in Man in the Long Black Coat? He doesn't sing "People Don't Live or Die, People Just Float" anymore, does he? He sings "I Went to the River, I Missed the Boat" or something, or, or <laughs> it's something like that, isn't it? Because that was the line at the time where everyone said, "People don't live or die, people just float." What the fuck? Yeah, you know. And then he said, "Oh, I just need a, a word to rhyme with with coat." Yeah, you know, that was his re- yeah. response. And I yeah, think now, I think go to the river and. Uh, and miss the boat is a better one. Uh, yeah, I do too. I think it's yeah, much better. Yeah. Not to stand yeah. up for people just float. I always <laughs> love that. Although I do have trouble with the title floater. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone told me what a floater no, is. I don't think they country. know in America. No, uh-huh. no. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a wonderful song, though. It yeah. is a wonderful song. And I know you love uh, Love and Theft. I do. I think Love and Theft is is the only great album he's made in the 21st century. Uh, such a generosity of writing, such a... Uh, he's in such a good mood. Mm-hmm. He's in the best mood he's been in since the basement tapes. Mm. Or Nashville Skyline, at yeah. least. I wonder where that was. You know, he just finished a grueling tour, at least a very long tour. He's producing himself, isn't he? That's, that's Is got to be something. Because he doesn't have to answer to somebody. He's free of Daniel Lanois. Yeah. yeah. And he's got a band that he likes and trusts and, and, and travels with and, and knows that when he gets mm. in the studio, he doesn't have to worry about a producer and a bunch of musicians that he's not au fait with, I guess. Mm. What would um, you say was the top, your, your favourite uh, tracks from Love and Theft, if you have any? Oh, I think Mississippi yeah. is just superlative. Yeah. Anyone who's ever admired his timing and phrasing and his breath control and all those things on the early acoustic work couldn't deny that it's just as good on Mississippi, yeah. on the released version of Mississippi. Yeah. But I love Floater. Mm. And I, I, I just love that album. The only track that I would be happy to live without would be Honest With Me, mm. which is just one of those easy rockers. Mm. You know, sometimes when a new album comes out, um, of course I'm going back a while now because they don't anymore come out that often, but it used to be that you would hear a new album and you would hear that there was some easy rocking number uh, like Everything is Broken, for example. Mm. Um, and he would just know that that was the one that he was going to sing most live mm. because it was easiest, you know. Mm. He was going to sing Everything is Broken far more often than he was going to sing uh, even something like Where Teardrops Fall. Or oh, Million Miles. That became a real ubiquitous thing, didn't yeah, it, in the early yeah, 2000s? Yeah. And Cold Irons Bound, yeah. that was another one that just got... All the time, live. Speaking of Cold Iris Bonds, I realize we haven't talked about any of his films, like, because uh, there was, a, I thought, a good version of it in uh, Masked and Anonymous, because I thought, the, for me, the concert stuff, not concert stuff, the live stuff, uh-huh. the stuff with the band, was more interesting than a lot of the film. Mm-hmm. I don't know, what did you make of that uh, Mastin Anonymous as a film. Do you, do you do you remember it? Have you seen it? I I, uh, I disliked it quite intensely. Mm-hmm. Actually, I just thought it was one of those embarrassingly uh, badly scripted things. Which um, it was like people who had no idea what a film should be like had made a film. Who had no idea 
what makes a plausible script. Bob Dylan's got form in this, it has to be said. (laughs) (laughs) films that have no sense of film. And I thought it was like a sort of cruddy Elvis movie in a way, you know, where there's the fight scene and, uh, uh, you know, oh, no, no. They should have had a high no. diving competition in, in Master Anonymous. Is it funny? Like a <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to see Bob in a swimsuit these days, no, but no. Yeah, he seems to keep in shape, I guess. <laughs> and what about, uh, we, we've just seen last night the uh, Scorsese kind of documentary. Story. The, story. A Bob Dylan story. Yeah, what, uh, this is like, we saw it literally last night. Yes. What's your first Im- impression? Oh, I was dazzled. Yeah, um... It was the, the footage of the the concert footage is riveting, of course. So, I mean, you knew it was, but you just hadn't seen so much of it so complete before. And um, I mean, it's a very long time ago since I saw Ronaldo and Clara, mm. you know. Um, uh, and um, but ah, oh, there was there was far too much to take in mm. on one showing. Mm. Mm. I was so glad to see it on the big screen, though. Yeah. I was particularly pleased to hear you, you know, your reactions because you know, I sat next to you, and that was that was as, as rewarding as the film in some places because it was just fantastic. Yeah, there are so many moments when you, the moment when he's playing Dark as the Dungeon in the rehearsals at the beginning, I just felt like weeping because I yes. just thought, how is it we have this? Yes, it's it's just been it's been in a vault for decades. Yes. And now we have this extended footage of him rehearsing with these wonderful musicians. You're right, too much to take in 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 one go. Yeah. From the box set, which has just come out, Mm. I I did find myself thinking, okay, there's 14 CDs worth, but where is the piano version of... Um, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, which you heard yeah. uh, mm. bits of on the soundtrack of Ronaldo and Clara. Why not? Well, it wouldn't be a Dylan release if, if, if we weren't allowed to complain about the miss, the missing track <laughs> in one sense. And Easy and Slow, I know that you're, you're, we've all been hit by that, that Irish ballad that, you know, a couple of weeks ago nobody knew existed. Yes. And I've, I've found myself rather strangely waking up in the morning and singing Isis to the tune of Easy and Slow. Um, because I was listening to a lot of both of them. Then I realised that structurally they're the same song. Uh-huh. I actually sat down this morning and tried to see if I could sing Isis over the tune of Easy and Slow. Now, first of all, Isis is, is longer, and secondly, it's got a hell of a lot more syllables. But basically, it does work. Uh-huh. You know, And I wonder if he subconsciously was, was thinking of that when he wrote Isis and then was reminded of Easy and Slow, or whether he just nicked it or... Well, those things are very difficult. I mean, it must be very difficult to 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 write a tune without having some other tune impose itself on you or I'm creep sure, up. Yeah, underneath. once I mean, you've heard something and it's in your in your your mind and on your radar, it's almost possible to unthink it, isn't it? Years ago, Danny Baker did something on his radio show where he asked people to to phone in with songs that they are the listeners are reminded of by noises that household objects make. <laughs> Huh. And there were quite a lot of them. Like I turn on my Hoover, and I suddenly and I get this song on the brain. And for me, I didn't bring in, but it's hit me since. Whenever I plug in my iPhone, you know that that charging chime yeah. that you get. It's the opening notes of, uh, or the opening note of "You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman," Aretha Franklin's version. <laughs> Every time I plug my, my iPhone in, right. that chord well, makes that's me want quite, to sing. That's quite pleasant, isn't it's it? It's quite pleasant, but you you can't get around it. Actually, when I was listening to uh, Easy and Slow, because that's it is a very earwormy, you know, it it jumps out at you. But I thought, what does it remind me of? For one thing, I think it's it's pretty sexy. 
As yeah, a, and yeah. so I, and then I don't know if I was listening to it. It reminded me of fourth time around. Mm. Uh, she buttoned her boot. Yes, yeah, something yeah. suit. I yes, said don't get cute. And I thought, mm, both sexy songs, both. Bob well, Dylan's I, the reason just, I confused it with ISIS is that the line um, I rolled up my sleeve to unbutton her shoe sounds very much. I rode back to find ISIS just to tell her I love her, and then my, my brain had kind of confused those two. Actually, I like it when I get Bob Dylan as an earworm. That's 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 fine with me. Yeah. I can live with that. I can uh-huh. live with that all day. It's when you get something that you don't particularly know or understand, and it's it's stuck or, in there. or it can be just something very unseasonal. I find myself, yeah, you know, as an atheist, I find myself singing hymns, and um, in the middle of summer, I find myself singing a bit of a Christmas carol to myself. Yeah. You know? so what did you make of Bob's Christmas album? Oh, I liked it. I yeah. liked it. I'm not sure now that I like it as much as I did. But when it first came out, I really liked it. Anything you want to um, leave us with, Michael, just uh, as far as Dylan and the future, maybe? Oh, I, ho- I hope for another album, as we all do. Um, and um, I would... You know, you can't you can't always get what you want. Um, <laughs> Interesting quote. <but laughs> occasionally, you get what you need. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Edna Mann Correctional Facility for Women at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley Smith and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. Raspberry, strawberry, lemon and lime. What do I care? Blueberry, apple, cherry, pumpkin and plum. Call me for dinner, honey. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs>